everyone. Thanks for joining us today. Today, we are blessed and excited to be joined by His Excellency Archbishop Cordelione from the Archdiocese of San Francisco. He's been in the news quite a bit lately, but we couldn't be more thankful for the clarity or for the conversation that he is looking to provide um, on behalf of the church. So um, us lay individuals couldn't be more excited to have you with us. Well, thank you. Thank you. Good to be with you. Wonderful. So a lot of the things that you've been bringing up recently are, you know, deep in mind to us and our, our followers, obviously, right? We we yearn for that clarity that uh, that you're providing and that that dialogue that you're you're hoping to engage in. I got to read your article and first things that you just published uh, a couple of days ago and even more clarity and provided in that. But I think one of the first angles that we would like to start is um, our role as men, as fathers, as devout Catholics in society and how we can engage in conversation in the realm of politics without getting all heated and emotional and still kind of maintaining some sense of dignity of ourselves and the other person. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Oh, well, that's a pretty big, broad <laughs> question. Uh, I always think that uh, those sensitive conversations have to come out of a, a relationship uh, rather than just spouting out one's opinions. Uh, but there has to be an authentic human relationship to kind of build up a certain level of trust. And um, then when the topic comes up to, you know, nowadays people don't really discuss issues. They're all sort of ad hominem arguments. They attack yes. the other person. They don't attack their idea. They attack the person. And um, so, so just it's leading to this more and more bitter and polarized uh, society that we're living in. So to, uh, have a genuine human encounter at just at the human level and then um, then talk about the issues and and don't don't attack the person or, or the people to the state yeah. yeah thank you so i want to ask about conscience this is uh, a word that comes up quite frequently uh both positively and negatively um there's some who say well my conscience says I can do X, Y, or Z, even though it violates Catholic moral teaching. There's other people who say that conscience really is, uh, well, I guess I'm saying they, they treat it as a, as a permission slip to do whatever they feel is right. There's other people who say, no, well, conscience has to be guided or formed. So I guess really, what is the Catholic view of conscience? What is is it is it an infallible guide? Um, is it something that needs to be formed or guided? Uh, what is the proper view of conscience? It certainly has to be formed. And no, it's not infallible. Um, but one has to follow one's conscience. But one has a responsibility to, to properly form the conscience. Conscience is not the faculty each person has to decide what is right or wrong, uh, let alone what is right or wrong for themselves. Uh, conscience is the faculty to, to decide figure out what the right thing is to do in a concrete situation based on what is right and wrong. So we're not the arbiters of what is right and wrong. So one, one can be mistaken in what they think is right or wrong, and then their, their decision will be faulty. Um, if I could uh, adapt a, a, a image used by Cardinal Lorenzi uh, 
about precisely about this abortion issue and politicians, uh, I could say, well, what if my conscience tells me that it's the right thing to do to kill you all because you're in favor of killing babies? Does that make it right? Right. Would that be justified? Right. Yes. And and kind of uh, building on that question, how do we know? How do we know the difference between a well-formed conscience and one that isn't? How can we trust our conscience, I should say? There's something we call the natural moral law that kind of the, the rightness resonates within people, such as it's it's wrong to kill innocent human beings. Mm-hmm. It's wrong to lie. Yeah. It's wrong to inflict harm on other people. Um, um, uh, and innocently uh, who are innocent, you know, so there are things in the natural moral law. And then we have, then of course, the church as a guide, we have scripture and tradition to help guide us to, to, to shape our, our conscience accordingly. We think about the 10 commandments, uh, really the other, the first three are from revelation. Well, with our reason alone, we conclude, conclude that God exists, but in terms of, keeping his name holy, keeping the Sabbath day holy, you know, these are from revelation, but the other seven are from the natural moral law, you know, to not kill, not uh, commit adultery, not uh, steal, uh, not lie. Um, So um, these are things that uh, people in most societies have been able to figure out without the light of, of revelation. Yeah. And it's, um, and I liked what you said, you talked about how when um, a certain individual or group of individuals uh, try and play the trump card of uh, primacy of conscience, um, they're failing to miss the full scope, right, of of conscience, and that it's it's a sort of aversion tactic, I think is the word you used, and that um, we don't invent truth, right? Uh, the natural moral law, right? And, and our divine law that we that we follow under the guidance of the church is what we are subject to as men and, and what we need to be working towards a deeper and better understanding. So, so we talked a little bit about the individual's response to some of these difficult questions and discussions, how it needs to be founded on a relationship. My question is, what is the church's responsibility uh, in teaching and guiding and confronting some of these errors in society. I know there's some people who say, well, that we should excommunicate everybody. We should anathematize everybody. We should just be condemning this mm-hmm. and that and the other thing. There's other people who take a more soft approach or a more gentle approach, if you will. Um, but what is the church's responsibility in confronting some of the errors of our time? Well, certainly to teach clearly about it. So, you know, the bishops voted to uh, issue another teaching document on this Eucharistic coherence. Uh, So certainly the hierarchy has to do its part in in its responsibility as teachers to teach clearly. Uh, The level of uh, pastoral care, uh, I mean, these conversations have to take place. I, I understand it's kind of a law and order mentality that the law is broken, the person is punished. And that's that's how it works in civil society, but uh, canon laws doesn't work quite the same way. Um, in, in canon law, it, it's important for to ensure good order and protection of rights, but it's always looking for the salvation of souls. And um, the uh, the idea of applying penal sanctions is always as a, only as a last resort. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think the conversations have to take place, right, to try to move someone to a conversion of heart and um 
I mean, hopefully priests are doing this all the time within the context of the sacrament, within the context of the pastoral counseling with their parishioners. When it's a public figure, then it gains a greater matter of, it's a weightier matter because of the public witness or counter witness that they're giving. So the conversations have to take place to help them understand uh, the truth of the matter and try to move them to a conversion of heart. Yeah. And in this document on the Eucharistic um, coherence, as, as it's being written up, you know, there in November, what are some of your hopes uh, that will come out uh, of this document? Uh, well, we did issue one uh, back in 2006 on the idea of worthiness to receive communion. So I, I'm looking for this one to be more uh, kind of doctrinally rich and theologically comprehensive and uh, also address it will be addressed to all Catholics, but uh, that it would uh, highlight the added responsibility of Catholics in public life because of their public witness. So I'm hoping, and then it will try to explain the church has its its discipline, but uh, explain the theology underlying the discipline. So it can serve as a resource to bishops who are have to sometimes make decisions in this matter. That if if he's following the guidance of this document issued by the full U.S. Conference of Bishops that he, he's not acting out of step with his brother bishops. Yeah, no, we look forward to that as well. Another uh, question I have is a lot of people see the church speaking out on these issues as potentially, oh, well, you're going to hinder con anybody converting to the Catholic faith or you're going to make people feel excluded or you're going to, um, you know, nominal Catholics who are on the fence about practicing their faith or not, you're going to drive them away. Uh, we really need to build bridges and just be friendly. Like, how would you respond to that? You mean speaking out on issues that have to do with uh, fundamental controversial moral issues, it's... things like that. Yeah. The unpopular teachings of the church. Yeah. Yes. My belief is, and I think our experience proves this out, where the church church leaders are courageous, it inspires followers. It inspires people to respond and 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 uh, and and give their lives over to Christ and, and come into the church. Is that an example of, of of courage? So, uh, to give a, two examples from our own own history here in the United States. When slavery was being debated in the mid-19th century, the bishops were not speaking out against it. Uh, so Catholics, there weren't that many Catholics here. The church was just kind of small, beginning to grow, uh, was trying to fit into this new American experiment, which back then was not, was kind of different from the Catholic kind of model of cooperation of of church and state and, and pope and, and king and uh, kind of their kind of mutual care for the people, spiritual and 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 uh, temporal. So with it, this kind of American experiment in democracy was something the church had to figure out how to navigate still. Um, so their Catholics didn't fit in, were vulnerable and small and not very powerful. The popes had been speaking out very strongly against slavery, but uh, the bishops here tried to explain it in a way that it didn't really apply to the United States. So uh, 
uh, probably look back now, maybe back then it seemed the prudent thing to do, given the situation yes. the church was in, but we're not very proud of that now. And I don't know if that went over very many followers. Mm -hmm. Then in the mid 20th century, uh, the, the issue of the day was civil rights after World War II, that is, in the pre-civil rights South. And uh, the church was very strong there. Well, the, the church had grown quite a bit. The church figured out how to mesh with the American experiment in, in democracy. The church is really at, at a zenith at that point in the United States. And it was a strong moral voice. And so church leaders locked arms with faith leaders of other faith traditions uh, to work for, uh, uh, for justice for African-Americans in the pre-civil rights South. So uh, they didn't try to get along with those who wanted to um, perpetuate Jim Crow laws, you know? And uh, so I've given this example about, it's kind of well-known when Archbishop Rommel in, in New Orleans in the early 1960s um, was uh, developed a plan to integrate the Catholic schools in the archdiocese. He was opposed by three Catholics who were prominent in political life there in the archdiocese, and he actually excommunicated them. So, uh, so he wasn't really trying to get along with those he disagreed with. And we look back now, maybe there was a lot of blindness to the evil of, of racism in the Jim Crow South. Um, and it was dangerous for people, yeah. many people, to advocate for civil rights. Uh, but they had the courage to do so. Uh, so that happens with any, any major moral issue is going to have a political aspect to it. Yeah. Um, but we don't do it in order to, for some kind of a political agenda. We do it in order to, well, ultimately salvation of souls. But part of that is advocating for justice, defending the poor, defending the vulnerable, moving people to conversion of heart, trying to build a culture of life with a consistent ethic of life. So, uh, so it's precisely the church's role to be the conscience for the society. And so we, we have to, where there is grave injustice, we have to speak out. Um, yeah. And I don't know how anyone would respect us for trying to get along on issues that are serious violations of basic human rights. Yeah. Is there a primary, I mean, those were great specific examples. Is there a primary moral issue that uh, we hope that this document will bring out? Because, you know, the cacophony of opinions and noise and everything that Catholics are bombarded with on a daily basis in the digital space, um, you know, hearing one bishop say this and another bishop say that, like the mass media, you know, causes everyone's opinions to go on overdrive. And so I guess coming back down, um, is there a primary uh, moral uh, teaching here that we're uh, hoping to address, or is it really going to be broad? And by that, I mean, are we, uh, you know, going to try and address in this document? Are you going to, forgive me, you guys going to try and address in this document abortion, same-sex union, transgenderism, euthanasia, you know, all of these things, uh, you know, adoption, um, you know, orphanages here, and 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 those sort of attacks against Catholic um, uh, teaching and Catholic liberty, um, is there one specific or is it going to be rather broad? Uh, well, it'll be inclusive. It's not going to address any one issue, even one, any one set of issues. It's going to address principles that would yeah. be applied to these issues. 
So we'll probably mention some examples. I would imagine abortion and euthanasia will be in there. Actually, this term Eucharistic coherence, we lifted from the Aparecida document. This is the Latin American bishops who met in Aparecida in Brazil back in 2007 and issued mm. this document, which is like a grand pastoral planning vision for them in that hemisphere. The, um, and in one chapter, they speak about this, the but they mentioned specifically Catholic legislators, other government officials and healthcare workers that if they're participating in these very serious evils, they should not be receiving communion. And it mentions specifically abortion and euthanasia as two examples. It doesn't say those are the only two, it says they are among others, but mentions that specific examples, abortion yeah. and euthanasia. Cardinal Ladaria, the prefect of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, who sent Archbishop Gomez that letter back toward the end of May, um, advising us to make sure we dialogue and try not to disrupt unity. At the beginning of the letter, he cites a letter that his predecessor, then Cardinal Ratzinger, sent to the U.S. bishops back in 2004 on this issue, where um, he advised us to have these conversations. And if it's, if it's clear that it's not going to work, the person's not to be admitted to communion. But he, he speaks about if they are involved in uh, very serious evils and attacks on human life. And there again, he mentions the two examples of abortion and euthanasia. The reason for that is there are many other uh, direct attacks on human life, such as human trafficking, yeah. genocide. But I don't see any legislators trying to legalize human trafficking, let right. alone have the government funded. Mm. So uh, to take another uh, comparison, another very important issue high, very high priority issue for us bishops and has been for decades is trying to get some kind of comprehensive immigration reform. Mm. So if people are looking at, if it's the abortion issue, that this is a political agenda and we're weaponizing the Eucharist for political purpose, that would be true, in my mind anyway, that would be true if it's pref preferring one policy over another policy. Mm. Uh, but I mean, we're talking about the murder of 66 million babies in their mother's wombs since the Roe decision in this country alone. I mean, it, it, this is the human rights crisis of our generation. It's, it's, it's not comparable to anything. So I'd say with the immigration issue, it would be weaponizing the Eucharist if, to say, we want, there are a number of things that we think are necessary for just immigration reform. Um, we would like to see uh, those who are here undocumented to get on a path to earned citizenship. Now there's a lot of opposition to that. So let's say there's a Catholic legislator who has an immigration bill that emphasizes border security, which we're also in favor of, but mm -hmm. border security, but not helping the undocumented get a, a legal status to regularize their situation. And so I could see that as weaponizing the Eucharist. If, they were excommunicated or denied communion. That'd be different from a legislator trying to pass a bill uh, requiring border patrol agents to gun down immigrants crossing the border illegally. Mm. Right. So yeah. I, that, that's an, a, a totally different category. Right. right? So you, you can't even compare it. Uh, so I think we have to recognize on these, and these are the two issues that are direct attacks on human life that many government officials are favorable to and even want to fund. 
abortion and euthanasia. Right. Right? They're, they're not favorable to any other attack, direct attack on human life. Well, unless we get into embryonic stem cell research. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, and, and all of that makes a lot of sense. I, I'm just curious though, there's a lot of people in, within the church even who say that this is misguided, this is backwards, <laughs> etc. Of course, in the culture, they just see these attempts of the church to um, proclaim its, its teaching, but also to ensure to the best of the church's ability that that public Catholics are living in in coherence with their faith um, as just benighted, backwards, hostile, etc. And um, I guess what is the biggest struggle in communicating these truths to our culture? What is the hardest thing about getting these truths across to our culture in your experience? breaking through the filter of the dominant narrative um, mm. and getting people really to recognize science. You know, I mean, that this is another big myth that religion and science are opposed to each other, the church. I had just heard something on National Public Radio the other day about the Vatican Observatory, but they started out saying how the Catholic Church, uh, you know, denies science when it conflicts with, with its teachings. That, 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 that's preposterous. Yeah. I mean, the church basically gave the world science. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Science existed from antiquity, but the church right. developed it, came up with a scientific method of inquiry. A great breakthrough scientists have been clerics and religious. So uh, so to get to people to, to really take science seriously, if we go back to the abortion issue, I mean there's no question this is this is a unique human life in the womb of the mother. There's no there's no question that this is killing. Mm-hmm. That's very clear from science. Yeah, but uh, but yet they'll they'll deny it. So I think it's the challenge is trying to break through that filter that deflects attention away from what the issue really is. And this is what mm-hmm. they always do. They de- they come up with nifty phrases like choice uh, and or healthcare rights, whatever, or health uh, reproductive rights, uh, reproductive healthcare. These are all you know code words to deflect attention away from what the issue really is. Because mm-hmm. if people were to look at it straight on, they cannot but recognize how evil it is. Yeah. How do we get through the individual's opinions? And by that, I mean, we've got we've got all over the place where people are like, the church shouldn't be doing this. The church shouldn't be doing that. And when we're talking about just lay individuals with a YouTube channel sounding board where they are, are declaring, you know, basically doctrine, you know, on, on their, their followers, but in the end, it's their opinions. How would you, how would you speak to that about this being Christ church and about the appropriate hierarchy of, of what you and your brother bishops are attempting to do um, uh, to guide us in this very, uh, like I said, breaking through the narrative is what got me thinking about this is that that toxic narrative on both sides of the spectrum with, um, you know, lay individuals just looking for clarity, but also having a sounding board, unlike we've ever seen in, in, in history, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. And in fact, it is a big concern among the bishops. I'm on a, a um, an ad hoc committee to look into um, how, how to better uh, relate with Catholic publishers within the, the new social media world. But it also has brought in this conversation about 
with the independent operators on Catholic on social media who yeah. are again one 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 side of the spectrum or the other. Um, so we're we're I that's it's a tough question uh, because they have they have a, an audience there and people follow them who want to follow them. But uh, I I think uh, the uh, just continuing to teach clearly and to give a faithful witness, there has to be the personal witness, right? That famous line from St. Paul VI and Evangelium Nunciandi about the, the world is looking not so much for teachers, but witnesses. Mm. So we teach most effectively as, as a witness. So we have to teach clearly with words, but also give the, the personal witness to that. Yeah. And I think Sam and I talk very frequently, the reminder that it's Christ church and it's not our church, you know, and that, that yes. we are, are fortunate to be members of it. So thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Appreciate that. Yeah. And I guess just uh, a question I have uh, is what words of encouragement would you offer to individuals who look around and all they see is perhaps hostility um, or criticism both from without the church, but also sometimes within the church and people who are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to lead their families in the right direction and they just get discouraged. They just feel like everything's against them. Um, the world's against them. And it's just very difficult for people to keep their head above water sometimes, at least in a lot of the conversations that I've had with individuals. What words of encouragement would you offer to, to people who uh, just feel out of place in, in this culture? Um, I can understand how hard it is uh, for people, uh, but they have to bind together. There's more support for what is right than people realize, because uh, mm. I encounter this all the time. <clears throat> well, I'm a public figure, so when I say something or do something, and you know, I get a lot of reaction, but it's way more positive than critical. Mm. And uh, wherever I go, people thank me, they say they support me, so... First of all, there's a lot more support for um, people who understand what is good and true and and uh, live by it. So they have to seek out that company in their faith communities. You know, we strengthen each other in, in relationship with each other. And uh, to stand firm because uh, this is all, it's really a whole, it's a godless ideology whether it's the direct attacks on human life, redefinition of marriage and family, and even what it means to be a man and a woman. Uh, these, and when God, when a society removes God at, from the center, it falls because it's built on a lie. You yeah. can look back all the way in a, a very ancient history, the kingdom of Israel, uh, they, you know, they kept going over to worshiping the pagan idols of their pagan neighbors. And the prophets kept telling them, this is gonna be spell doom for you. Don't come back to fidelity to the covenant. But they kept entering in these covenants with their pagan neighbors and worshiping their false gods, their kingdom eventually fell. Uh, we can go up to relatively recent history. Marxism is a, an explicitly atheistic ideology. And uh, the Soviet Union lasted for a while, it eventually collapsed. So. This is, this is at least implicitly atheistic. And it's, so it's based on a lie and it will collapse. Mm. Um, but we don't know how much more damage it will do before it collapses. But uh, in the end, to always bear in mind, something I always bear in mind is 
the most important thing is our final exam. Yeah. Right. When we pass from this life to the next, we're not going to have to render an account to, you know, coworkers or our boss or to the popular culture, only to God. So to have, to be at peace in one's conscience before God is the most important thing of all. Yeah. Thank you. Well, Your Excellency, um, just the last thing in, in this uh, idea of mutual uh, uh, support and share and love, what can we be doing as lay men uh, to help our bishops and our, our archbishops? Because I can imagine it seems it can feel very um, isolated in your position at times. And and what would be appropriate for us, because uh, we have a general you know, audience of tens of thousands of, of lay men uh, to do to, to help? This, this is one of the biggest crises we have is the, the demise of masculinity. Uh, so from my perspective, it would be to be a good, strong, faithful man. Mm. And uh, those who are married, to be um, a good, faithful husband and, and father, uh, there is, this is super, super politically incorrect, but the Christian vision is one of the male, male headship. Yeah. But in the Christian sense, not in a secular sense, That's you know, right. Ephesians chapter five, it's Christ is, is the head of the church. He's the bridegroom who gives his life. So a man has to expend his all out yeah. of love and fidelity for his wife and his family. That's, that's what male headship means. So to be a real man in, in that sense, and a real man is faithful to his wife, a real man provides for his children and protects them. A real man listens to them, gives good, proper guidance. Um, and uh, that's what is sorely lacking in the world today. So when I see that, I feel encouraged and, and, and bolstered in what I have to do. Oh, thank you. That's exactly what we're trying to encourage men to do through this apostolate. So thank you so much. Uh, Your Excellency. Yeah, Your Excellency. Thank you for being here. We really appreciate it. Uh, could you? Could we end in prayer? Would you mind leading us in prayer? Sure. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the blessings you have given us, the call you've given us to serve you and give you glory. Guide us by your spirit to know your will. Uh, strengthen us with your grace to carry it out that we might bear witness to your light and truth. And may the blessing of Almighty God come upon you and remain with you forever, the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.